Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to this uh, Prio Mideast uh, Breakfast uh, Seminar, uh, hosted by the Prio Middle East Center in uh, collaboration with the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. My name is Maria Gabrielsen Jumberg. I'm a research director here at Prio and uh, the co-director of the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to this opportunity to have an informed conversation about uh, UNRWA uh, and uh, the challenges for millions of Palestinians. Uh, for the past 70 years, the UN Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, has provided humanitarian support for Palestinian refugees, which number around 5.9 million people today, as they wait for a political solution. And after decades of conflict, such a solution has failed to materialize. And the need for UNRWA continues to be there. Despite this, uh, the organization has struggled with persistent underfunding, uh, even though humanitarian needs are immense. And this is part of what we will be discussing today. And in the wake of multiple regional crises, the situation for Palestinian refugees uh, is becoming increasingly precarious. For now, it also suffices to say that we don't yet know what the consequences uh, of the earthquake in Turkey and northern Syria will be for the broader region, in addition for uh, international relief efforts to the broader region. There has at the same time been an increasingly politicized debate around the funding situation of UNRWA, uh, notably in a number of donor countries. And we are hosting this discussion today on the occasion of the visit of Deputy Commissioner of UNRWA, uh, Lianne Stenset, here with me uh, today. And it's also the opportunity to launch uh, this report here, uh, UNRWA Funding Crisis and the Way Forward, um, a CMI report that has been co-authored by my researcher colleagues, Kjersti Berg, uh, from the Christian Michelson Institute in Bergen. Uh, up here, who will you will hear from afterwards. Uh, my Prio colleague, uh, Jorgen Jensehaugen, as well as Åge Tilknes uh, from Fafo, who I saw yeah, a bit up here. Thank you very much. But without further ado, I will let you, uh, Lenny, uh, uh, introduce us to um, the current situation of UNRWA as well as challenges you see ahead in the region and for the organization. And then I will give the word to uh, Kjersti uh, Berg and Jørgen Jensehaugen to introduce this report. We will then have a panel discussion, including also um, uh, Julia Takahashi from the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And then we also look forward to opening up uh, for questions uh, and comments from, uh, from the audience. Then I will give you the word, Ellen. Thank you, Maria, and thank you, uh, Prio, for hosting this event, and thank you, everyone, for coming and for your interest for UNRWA and for Palestine refugees. Just a couple of weeks ago, UNRWA launched its six years uh, strategy, 2023-2028, a very ambitious strategy for how we would like to modernize the agency. At the same time, we also uh, launched our budget ask for 2023, 1.6 billion US dollars that will enable us to deliver core services and humanitarian assistance to 
Palestine refugee residing in a five fields of operation. Today we have uh, 5.9 Palestine refugee registered based on the definition decided by the UN General Assembly. Uh, we do on a daily basis provide services to approximately 3 to 3.5 million Palestine refugees. And we continue to do so amidst very challenging circumstances. We deliver health, education uh, to uh, Palestine refugees who have nowhere else to go. Uh, we deliver humanitarian assistance to Palestine refugees who need UNRWA for their bare survival. And we continue to do this um, while we're struggling to fundraise the resources needed to deliver. We do that today, and we did that for many, many years. Um, I'm aware there is a report from, I think, 2002 or 2003 that Olga was the co-author of. Uh, it's uh, a, a report uh, which has a title um, somewhere, you know, like uh, UNRWA's financial challenges, and that's 20 years ago. When I joined the organization a couple of years ago, I thought this is an organization that has always been struggling financially. There's never been sufficient amount of funding to deliver on the needs of uh, an ever-growing Palestine refugee population who are seeking uh, UNRWA's services. But what I have learned uh, since I joined is that things are changing. The, um, the way we are um, operating today is different from, let's say, 10, 15 years ago when it comes to the resources available. Because what we saw a couple of years ago uh, was that the income to the organization was stagnating. Uh, today, when we launched our appeal for 2023, asking for 1.6 billion US dollars, we do that being aware that we have not had an increase in our income since 2012. So it has stagnated uh, over the last 10 years, while the needs have dramatically increased. So that's the context we're operating in. That's the context we are facing when we're asking the donor community to continue to support the organization. And when I, I'm saying that we're facing a very challenging context, uh, it uh, relates to a number of factors. First, we see a changing geopolitical uh, situation. Uh, we see a changing regional dynamics. And uh, we see a number of new humanitarian crises, not only in the region, but of course very significant, Syria, uh, since 2011, uh, Yemen, that are drawing the attention of uh, not only the donor community, but also the political attention away from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the region. But I think going beyond that, we also see that climate change is, in, uh, are, you know, we see the effect of climate change on uh, the demand for humanitarian financing uh, all over the world, if it's natural disaster, it's famine in the Horn of Africa, and then uh, situations such as in uh, Afghanistan, and now also, of course, recently Ukraine. So all these uh, are new factors, I would say, compared to 10, 15 years ago that are impacting 
the agency's ability to operate because we see that the pressure uh, on uh, humanitarian financing is increasing uh, and matched with uh, attention being drawn to other type of challenges. Uh, we also see on a more you know, political front the clear deprioritization of the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. And there are few signs, if any, of positive development for uh, the Palestine refugees living under occupation. Uh, the new Israeli government, uh, the fragility of the PA, are factors that are uh, causing grave concern for the years to come, uh, seen from, from our perspective. Uh, and then, and I have to mention this as well, what we see is uh, an increase in the unjustified attacks against the agency. Um, this is picking up uh, after a lull of maybe 12 to 3 months. Again, we're seeing signs that uh, the uh, very systematic um, organized attacks against the agency uh, is picking up in many capitals, not only <coughs> in Europe, but elsewhere, uh, which uh, poses a huge risk uh, to the funding and the political support to the agency. And then I would also like to mention our operational context. Um, the socioeconomic situation in our fields of operations. Um, I, I don't think I have to explain that to you here, you know it very well, but um, for example in Lebanon, uh, in June 2022, when we did uh, a living condition survey, quick impact living condition survey, we uh, had uh, a poverty rate of 73%. Four months later, it had increased to 93%. The speed that the situation uh, is deteriorating in Lebanon is just beyond belief. It goes so fast, and you have to be on the ground to understand it. You have to be in the camps uh, to understand how fast the situation is becoming worse for the Palestinian refugees. And not only, of course, the Palestinian refugees, the Lebanese themselves, and the Syrian refugees uh, residing in Lebanon, but, but we are, of course, focusing mostly on the Palestine refugees, uh, although we see now in our camps that Lebanese are moving in because they have nowhere to go and they're seeking our services as well. Uh, but it's not only in Lebanon. Uh, in the West Bank, um, the protection concerns are growing day by day. Um, in Gaza, uh, the uh, mental, uh, uh, social uh, and mental challenges for the children growing up in the Gaza Strip after 15 years of blockade. I think we don't have the full oversight of how severely this has impacted the young generation in Gaza, those who have never um, uh, experienced a day without uh, active conflict and the threat of war. Uh, and of course, uh, we all know that 15 years ago before the blockade, we delivered food uh, support on a daily basis to 80,000 people. 15 years later, we deliver food assistance to 1.2 million Palestine refugees in the Gaza Strip. So I think that number alone shows us how difficult the situation has become. Uh, turning to Syria, um, I don't have to say much about the situation there, as that's uh, something we're all familiar with, but we have approximately 400,000 Palestine refugees, in uh, half of them internally displaced in Syria. And uh, as it often is, those uh, who are the most vulnerable are the most heavily impacted when there is a crisis, and that's also the case in Syria, although 
the suffering of the Syrian population is also um, uh, incredibly high. Uh, we we do see that the protection needs for Syrian uh, uh, Palestinian refugees uh, is uh, uh, increasing day by day because of the socioeconomic situation in in Syria. I would like to mention one example. Uh, because we do provide rental subsidies to those who have been internally displaced. Many of them did live in Yarmouk camp before the war, uh, because what we give is no longer sufficient to pay rent. Uh, many, particularly female-led households, have to move out in the streets with their kids, and of course they are looking for ways out of such a desperate situation. Many are returning to Yarmouk, which is a camp without any services, uh, there's no electricity, no sewage, no schools, no health services. Uh, we do uh, provide busing of the children who are living in the rooms in Yarmouk. We have a mobile health clinic now that uh, provides health services once a week. But the speed that people, uh, Palestine refugees in Syria, are now returning to Yarmouk uh, poses a, a, a huge challenge for us as an agency as we do not have any funding to scale up or support or to do rehabilitation of the camp with a few exceptions. Uh, in Jordan, the situation is also difficult, but less so than in the other fields. Um, we do have uh, a segment of the Palestine refugee population in Jordan, which is often named the ex-Gazans. These are Palestine refugees who came to Jordan uh, around 1967. They were not given Jordanian citizenship and have not the same rights as other Palestine refugees in Jordan. And they are, you know, of course, the among the most vulnerable, and they have also been impacted by uh, the uh, fallout from the COVID pandemic on the socioeconomic situation in, in, in Jordan. So the operational context uh, is extremely challenging for us. And then uh, in this context with uh, the reduced attention to Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the changing regional dynamics, uh, the attacks against the agency, and the socioeconomic situation in our fields, uh, we are struggling more than ever on the financial side. And when I say more than ever, it goes back to what I mentioned uh, in the beginning, because the, uh, the way the financial crisis presents itself is different. And why is that? As I said, our income has stagnated since 2012. So in 2012, we had an operational reserve in the agency. So each month we need approximately 70 million US dollars to pay our core, uh, 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 core s uh, staff delivering uh, health and education services. Um, so um, while uh, this is a struggle in terms of the cash flow situation that we need to have that amount of money in our account every month, uh, this has uh, been, you know, uh, a kind of, I would say, an existential threat uh, because we don't have an operational reserve. We need that money to come in every month. Until 2012, we had a three-month operational reserve, so whenever a donor was late, we could always borrow from the operational reserve. Uh, among all the 33, 34 UN agencies, we're the only one without an operational reserve. And we're the biggest UN agency. The second biggest is UNHCR, has 14,000 staff. We have 30,000 staff. Uh, so our running costs are extremely high, and we don't have this operational reserve. That was depleted in 2012. Now, after that, 
there was a lot of efforts to make sure that we um, uh, deliver in a more efficient way, which is always important, and that yielded a lot of results in the first five, six years. After that, uh, austerity measures were imposed, and austerity measures does not deliver efficiency. Now, in 2019, that was not enough anymore. We started to borrow money. So since I joined the agency, uh, we have, uh, in order to be able to pay the salaries and to manage the year, uh, we have borrowed more and more money. We borrow from the UN and then we pay back as soon as we get money into our accounts, or we don't pay our vendors, for example. And this is a ways of m managing the financial situation that is not necessarily understood by people who are not uh, familiar with the way we operate the agency. But it is on a sometimes day-to-day -day basis that we're struggling to get the money we need. And uh, we have a full team who's only negotiating with vendors every month not to pay our electricity bill, not to pay the procurement of food, not to pay, not to pay, not to pay. Uh, so uh, it is only because we're such uh, a, a big customer, because we're a huge agency, that we're able to negotiate these deals. But that's becoming uh, increasingly difficult as well. So that is the change. Before, it was from year to year a struggle to get enough money, but it was a sound financial management of the organization. Today, we are getting closer and closer to a breaking point. Because we are, and I think this is something that we are often referring to, we are able to muddle through. We were able to muddle through uh, last year in 2022 as well. But I can share with you that on the 27th of December this year, when we're due to pay our salaries, uh, in the morning, the 27th of December, we didn't have enough money in our accounts. It was only because Canada uh, agreed to borrow, not to lend us money, in the morning, the 27th, we were waiting for the banks to open in Canada so they can transfer the money so we could push the button to make sure that the money was transferred to our staff. That's the way we're managing the agency right now. Uh, but miraculously for many, we're able to, to muddle through. We're able to pay the salaries. As, as long as we do that, you know, uh, I think it's difficult for us to, uh, to instigate the change that is needed. Because I think uh, as long as we're surviving, I think uh, given all the other challenges in the world, in the region, uh, the high demand for humanitarian and development financing, I think uh, you know we're left alone in a way. But we have a responsibility. Um, uh, we are engaging with donors, partners, and hosts to try to explain that uh, the current situation is not... Um, I say it, 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 it's not sustainable. When will we reach the breaking point? I don't know. That's uh, dependent on uh, developments beyond our control. Uh, we may muddle through this year. We may muddle through next year, even maybe five more years. I don't know. But it comes at the cost. And that's the silent cost that is paid by the Palestine refugees. Because the quality of our services, which we've always been very proud of, is also under pressure. Of course, that's not a surprise if you uh, uh, um, factor in the lack of investment in our infrastructure. Uh, in Gaza, we have 280 schools. The maintenance budget of our school 
is zero, or it's technically one dollar a year just to maintain that budget line. So when you don't invest in the infrastructure over years, it becomes depleted. Um, when you don't invest in your staff, we have 19,000 teachers. Of course, uh, the quality of the education we deliver uh, is reduced. And when we have to increase the sizes in of our classes every year, just to manage to continue to offer education to all that the kids who are entitled to it, it has an impact on the quality of what we deliver. When we see that doctors are now on an average using 2.5 uh, minutes, like two and a half minutes per patient, which is down from five minutes only two years ago, uh, that's numbers that should uh, you know, raise alarm because you cannot take the quality of the services you deliver for granted anymore. Uh, so this is also something that we're focusing on. Uh, while we're struggling to survive, we also have to raise the alarm because uh, even if we continue to muddle through, it comes at the cost for the Palestine refugees. In the middle of all this, we launched our next strategic plan. That's a very ambitious plan, uh, and it holds a lot of promise, I have to say. Because we do see the potential of being able to modernize the agency, to make sure that we can tap into all the potential from, uh, for example, digitalization. Telemedicine can offer a lot of cost savings and better quality services to the Palestine refugees. Digitalization of education holds a huge potential to improve the quality of the education and also the ability to deliver education through crisis. When we, not only when we had the, the pandemic, that was important because, of course, we have recurrent cycles of violence in Gaza, most recently in the West Bank, schools are closing. So being able to deliver um, um, better education uh, that offers a lot for the Palestine refugees who can be digitally competent and being able to increase their livelihood opportunities. We also, in our strategic plan, offers the opportunity of providing uh, livelihood opportunities for uh, the Palestine refugees. You know, or um, vocational training centers that are only offered to a limited number of the most vulnerable Palestine refugees today. We have a 93% employment rate. Uh, it offers huge possibilities for Palestinian refugee use, but also for those who are you know, investing in youth empowerment in the region. Why not look to the agency? We deliver uh, education to half a million kids every day. If we can build on that and deliver vocational training two to three years for the most vulnerable uh, among the Palestinian uh, youth, uh, refugee youth, we can increase their livelihood opportunities. So I'm just mentioning a few of all these opportunities that is there for the agency, for the Palestinians, in a situation where there's little hope of a political solution, where the likeliness of our mandate being renewed in three years, and three years, and three years uh, is high, we need maybe to think differently. And I'll, I'll, I'll soon end with that, because with all what I have uh, shared with you now, I think it's evident for everyone that change is necessary. But change is almost impossible at the same time because the agency is seen as not only a lifeline for so many Palestine refugees, but also as a symbol of the rise of return. So the fact that you cannot decouple 
the political significance of the agency, despite the fact that we don't have a political mandate, from the service delivery that we are mandated to uh, uh, deliver to the Palestine refugees make change very difficult. Uh, for the hosts and the Palestine refugees, any discussion around change uh, is a, a cause of grave concern. It threatens, you know, the, the, the their um, uh, their uh, sense of, you know, their hope for justice. Uh, for the hosts, they're afraid of being left with the responsibility of the Palestine refugee population. For the Palestine refugees themselves, they're of course afraid that the quality of the services will di uh, diminish or that the services as such will no longer be offered. But beyond that, it's about justice and the right of return. So to talk about change uh, is very difficult. And this is why the report that we're here to, to um, hear more about in a minute is so important as I see it. Because that report not only explains what UNRWA is about, which is quite complicated for newcomers, I have to say. It took me <laughs> quite a long time, <laughs> and I, I think I don't fully understand it yet. It's an extremely complex organization in terms of the kind of operational outreach we have and the political dynamic we're operating in. But it's also about you know what could the change look like. And because it's so difficult to talk about change, because you know any change uh, that would touch on the business model has political implications. I think for us now it is about making sure that this conversation took place. Because as I said, we don't know how long we will muddle through with you know ever uh, decreasing quality of our services. I personally don't believe that it is possible or it's not likely that it's possible that you know hosts and donors and partners come together and discuss and out of this discussion emerges a different UNRWA. I think it's too sensitive politically. But we do know that at some point, forces changed upon an organization because there are developments happening that uh, prevents the organization to continue to deliver in the current uh, form. And when will those changes be imposed? We don't know. But I would like to remind everyone about a change that was almost about to be forced upon the agency in 2018 when the Trump administration decided from one day to the other to defund the agency. That took away 50% of our funding. Now, in 2018, uh, the Gulf countries stepped up and compensated for the lack of US funding until the US was funded. Then they disappeared, by and large. Now, if there is a change of uh, administration in the U.S. Two, two years from now, if that uh, administration decides to defund the agency as happened in 2018, I'm not 100% convinced that the Gulf countries will come back because the region has changed. So that may be one situation where change is forced upon us. And then I think it's important that before that happens, we've had an informed conversation about what change could look like. And for that, we need to listen to the uh, to Jürgen and to Shashti uh, about their report and the changes that we may see happen in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lenny. This is uh, very useful uh, and, um, of course, concerning to, to listen to both how these challenges are not new. They've been there for many years, but have also um, become worse in the past uh, couple of years. 
So, so thank you for both introducing us to, to the actual important work that Indra is doing and the, and the landscape that you are, you are sitting in. Um, now we will listen uh, to Jörgen Jenshagen and Kerstin Berg introducing us to the, the, this CMI report that came out at the end of November. Uh, it's an, a commissioned report by the, um, commissioned by the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where you, as you mentioned, are both uh, introducing us to what UNRWA is and the what work uh, the agency does, but also at, um, uh, based also on a number of interviews that you've carried out last year, uh, together also with, uh, with Olga Filtnes, uh, are uh, describing a number of different scenarios, both the, the more perhaps optimistic ones and those you see as more realistic ones, but being more, more pessimistic. So I'll give you the word to, to take us through this. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maria, and thank you so much, Lenny, for, um, for your introductions and for your explanations. Um, so uh, our team uh, got this task from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs early last year, and uh, we did, uh, our, our job was, to, was, um, was two divided into two, it was to explain what UNRWA is, which is, uh, as Lenny said, a complicated theme. And it was to identify uh, hypothetical scenarios and to examine possible consequences of these scenarios. And this is what we have done. And we have done that through extensive rounds of interviews, extensive uh, access to UNRWA documents. Uh, we have interviewed, as you will see explained in the, in the introduction, who we have interviewed and, and how we have uh, approached this. So, um, and we will give you now a very quick run through of the report and we will focus on the scenarios because this is, as Lenny says, what points maybe to the future and what could be interesting for, uh, particularly interesting for, for us to discuss today. So as Lenny says, uh, UNRWA, does not, UNRWA does not have a political mandate. And for those who are not familiar with UNRWA, what does that mean? So this is where we start uh, the report. We go through the mandate, where it UNRWA operates, who are the beneficiaries, what services are provided. And those who follow UNRWA um, in the news will see that these themes are also often politicized and attacked. So it's important to sort of explore these themes carefully. And uh, I will simply say that UNRWA uh, different, is very different to UNHCR. As you know, UNHCR core of the mandate of UNHCR is to provide protection to refugees, durable solutions, either integration or repatriation or res third country resettlement. So UNRWA does not have a mandate uh, to provide this protection or durable solution. UNRWA has uh, uh, the, the core of its mandate is humanitarian and human development. It's to provide hu uh, humanitarian aid and state-like services to the Palestinian, uh, to the Palestine refugees, as it's termed uh, in this, um, as it's termed. So. UNRWA, so when, we, when people ask why is the refugee question still unsolved, why is UNRWA still exist, why does it need to have 
sort of future plans, you know, far into the future. There's no active, you know, anyone who, you know, commission who is searching for political solution, uh, for durable solutions for uh, the Palestine refugees. And this explains the limbo that the Palestine refugees find themselves in. And this, of course, has political reasons. This is a very important fundamental when we talk about UNRWA. So, uh, and this, the victims of this is, of course, the Palestine refugees who have had no access to, to either justice or durable solutions or compensation of any sort. And in the report, we go on to describe, uh, I would like to mention just sort of how the, the mandate has evolved and the discussion between the humanitarian and the political. And these are also quite complex themes. So on the one hand, UNRWA is described as sort of humanitarianizing uh, a, political, uh, a political question. So funding UNRWA leads to, in a way, uh, seeing the refugees merely as a humanitarian question. So that's one point. And the other one is that refugees often, even though UNRWA does not have a mandate to, prov to, to give durable solutions, um, many refugees see UNRWA to represent the right of return. So this is also a very important information to keep in mind. And thirdly, the evolution of the mandate. So it, the situation today is clearly not sustainable, but at the same time, UNRWA is criticized for being unsustainable. And with this setup, it's also a very difficult, you know, with the growing refugee population every year, it's also a very unsustainable, you know, setup. Um, so, um, and we also, in the report, we compare UNRWA to UNHCR, to other agency who are neither sustainable. They are also growing. They are working on difficult issues. Budgets are growing, problems are growing, new refugee crises are emerging. So it's also a feature of, of this field, I would say. So, yeah. so uh, I think the second section I kind of want to introduce before we move on to the scenarios, which is really important, is kind of touches on what, what Lenny said towards the end of, of uh, trying to figure out how to sort of solve the dilemma. Now, if you want to solve a, a Rubik's Cube or one of those puzzles where it's mumbled up and you need to make the right picture, what you're dependent on is movable parts. And in UNRWA situation, basically, you're stuck with three or four immovable parts. Uh, and this, this really creates a problem for adjusting the ability of the organization to deliver. So I'm just going to briefly mention some of those because they provide the context for the discussion in the scenarios. And the first, of course, is the beneficiaries, the Palestine refugees themselves, who are in, in dire situations all over the region. And their situation is basically immovable because they don't have access to durable solutions. So they're stuck, basically, in the situation uh, they are. Uh, and the main blockage, of course, for that, for durable solutions for them is, is Israel, who, who denies the right of return, etc. But also, of course, the hosts who, who could approach this, uh, this differently, but of course, for, for natural political reasons in, in terms of justice and the demands of the refugees, etc., that becomes an immovable part. 
Um, and just worth mentioning also, although that is perhaps the most important of the immovable parts because UNRWA is created for them, the Palestine refugees are, in terms of the hierarchy of, of uh, who's listened to in these political debates, they, they come out on, on bottom. Uh, and the two top ones uh, are, are the next ones I want to talk about. The first, of course, is, is the host countries, which basically host the refugees, whether it's in Gaza, West Bank, Jordan, Syria, or Lebanon, which just listening to these, you know it's, it's dire situations all over the place, uh, Jordan being best placed, West Bank perhaps second best placed, and that says quite a lot. And from the perspective of the hosts, they're immovable because uh, the, the refugees are, are stuck there, and there is a kind of agreement where the hosts host the refugees, but in return, the international community, um, mainly the West, has to fund the cost of having the refugees there. So anything that challenges that is for them considered a red line because it will put an unfair burden on them, right? There's the concept of burden sharing where they do half of the burden. If I, I guess it's more than half, but it's in terms of politically, that's the concept. But if funding stops, if UNRWA collapses, they do the double burden sharing, right? They do both the cost and and uh, the hosting. And the last immovable actor is uh, the international donors, which basically, you know, they, they've been funding UNRWA for, for a very, very long time, but because it hasn't, the issue hasn't been solved for 70 years, costs are rising, uh, politicization has, has happened, a lot of donors kind of just demand uh, a, a reduction in cost or, um, you know, debates among certain political communities want to just disband UNRWA. And that is a, is a real problem, and it's, it's really hard to see how you can just say, no, no, you have to keep funding because that's the structure. So all reforms have to kind of relate to these this setup of, of uh, complex uh, actors. Um, and I think with that, we can move to the scenarios because then we have the setup for discussing them. So what we see here um, is 12 uh, different scenarios. Um, we have colored them uh, dif the in different colors depending on the kind of theme that they we identify they belong to. And uh, before we uh, move on to explore them, it's important to note that they are hypothetical. Uh, some of them we have sort of identified in, in documents, although we have uh, sort of discussed uh, with interlocutors, uh, so they have we have compiled them and put them together during the, the process, but it's not the list that we have been given to explore. So there could be more scenarios, of, there are more scenarios, but these are the ones we have uh, landed on uh, here. So the blue, uh, blue ones are the ones we have identified as sort of floating and being discussed in debates, in discussions between UNRWA and donors. Uh, and they could be suggested by donors and they could be suggested by UNRWA, which is under heavy pressure to suggest reforms. And the red ones are the only kind of positive scenarios we have identified and they imply increased funding. And the green ones, they refer to uh, legal dimensions, and in particular, 
the possibility, the sort of options for including durable solutions. And the, the two final uh, are political changes that could influence how UNRWA operates. Um, and what Lenny described in her uh, presentation uh, is basically the first scenario. The austerity measures, uh, the, the daily paid teachers, the overcrowded classrooms, uh, no money for uh, rehabilitating classrooms. Uh, so all this is uh, what we identify as modeling through, uh, and it's been the default strategy for uh, quite uh, some time, maybe for 20 years. Uh, and um, as, as, you'll, as you'll immediately understand when Lenny was talking about it, it's, it's a detrimental policy. It erodes the agency from within and it deeply affects uh, the, the refugee population uh, and the quality of services. And it also leads to increased costs in the future. So it it's also has, uh, has a lot of insecurity uh, coming in that, this strategy. Um, so I think I'll jump to the, the second one. It is a, a scenario suggested that other UN agency would operate selected UNRWA services. And uh, this could be another UN agency could do something so, uh, that UNRWA, uh, so to sort of relieve UNRWA of some of what it's doing. Um, and we have explored this, discussed it with many of our interlocutors and analyzed it. And, and it, also, it was also launched last year as sort of UNRWA's uh, Commissioner General, trying to sort of see how it was received by the refugees. And uh, one criticism against this is that uh, it, it could contribute to sort of short-term closing funding gap, but donors would have to pay someone else to do the same. Uh, and it would be seen as highly political and it would uh, constitute paper changes and it wouldn't make UNRWA more sustainable in a, in a more inherent way. And it would come at a high political cost because it would be seen as, as the long-term impact could be that the host countries would be responsible for this um, service. And the third one, um, it, it's a scenario where UNRWA uh, keeps education and health, but does not anymore provide humanitarian aid, and that would be a sort of emergency relief and also the relief and social services that UNRWA provides. And, um, and this is also a very radical reform for UNRWA. Uh, and one main challenges to this uh, strategy is that uh, education is, I think, 85%, at least personnel cost is somewhere near 85%, you have to correct me, Lenny, of the budget. So it wouldn't really help UNRWA's challenge of sustain, sort of 
making the agency more sustainable and it's also these kinds of costs that it's maybe hardest for UNRWA to get funding for that the salaries so uh, and it would also be seen as extremely politically sensitive uh, we would be chopping off an arm of the agency basically and then there is tightening the eligibility criteria and and now today there are sort of poverty criteria the only the the, the it's a definition uh, that says who will receive relief and social services and emergency assistance so it's not for everyone of course it's not universal amongst the refugees so uh, this suggestion is to cut uh, tighten this criteria and leave out certain groups and as you can imagine this is also highly controversial and you would cut uh, in already very very identified vulnerable groups um, and then number five uh, it it explores cutting selected services in Jordan and the West Bank and there are certain themes that have been been discussed between UNRWA and donors for many many years it's about it's the UNRWA hospital it's vocational training it is what else it's the waste, uh, waste disposal in camps so uh, so the question here is the similar to the others that cutting these kinds of um, services or that UNRWA is offering would be seen as transferring them to the host and he also here it would be um, seen as highly politically sensitive and there's also the question of you're actually cutting uh, you know vocational training and teacher training courses which for the refugees which is one avenue for the refugee to have a uh, a valued education and an access you know in order maybe to access work so it's also you know does it the question of it, it does it make sense to to cut uh, and to, to do cuts that would affect young young people in the region um, and then there's the final one which is the most dramatic one it's about cutting all services and assistance to to all refugees in Jordan and the West Bank and as you can imagine this is extremely you know it's so it's seen as impossible by everyone we interviewed and there are very sort of uh, there are sort of uh, examples of that this could of course save a lot of money because it would be the cuts would be so you know would be huge um, but it's um, as Jörgen explained this would this would you know uh, leave the host country uh, to be responsible for these services and uh, as we know that for example in Jordan um, Jordanians were promised funding for Syrian refugees in the future but it has as things have evolved funding have often not been forthcoming so the Jordanian government has experienced that you know they 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 will be sort of sitting there being at the end of the day they'll be responsible and be paying for 
uh, for everything. Yeah, so thank you. So these, these first scenarios, they're basically what we think of as from bad to worse. Uh, and the dilemma is, you know, if something has to give, then these are, are the things that, that might have to give. So it, it's, uh, as, as Lenny said, it's important that we raise the discussion so that it's, it's clear that, that these are actually real scenarios and they're kind of uh, all bad. Um, the next two sets of scenarios shouldn't go too much into them. The first, of course, is to get this boost of money to, to improve uh, efficiency, uh, upgrade camps, uh, etc., which then can potentially uh, reduce costs down the line. You close that sort of deterioration uh, gap. Um, and, and it should also be said that many of these scenarios can happen in parallel. So it's not like if that happens, then none of these are valid. Number eight, I think, requires a little bit more explanation because we've broken it down into various ways that can happen. So as we've been seeing over these past years, UNRWA is just not getting more uh, money. But there are some ways that they can get more money. And the first such example is this question of the UNSS dues, which basically is the, the UN core funding. And UNRWA is... It, it gets a very tiny portion of its funding from this uh, assessed use, and that is to the international employees. Uh, and that has been sort of uh, a thing that's been part of UNRWA for a very, very long time. But very recently, there has been um, a proposal that has gone through the UN whereby it's possible to give, to get money to UNRWA through assessed uh, dues. Um, but it's, it's uh, as it currently stands, it's a small amount and it has been opened up for other categories. This is not enough to save UNRWA, but it, is a, it, it creates a precedence. So it might mean that that's a door opener for future um, increase from that, that path. The second path is, is more money from, from UN member states. And there we basically assess that it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look likely. There are, of course, some member states that don't give uh, money or don't give much money to UNRWA that could open uh, more money to UNRWA in the future. But given the, the state of, of global affairs where there are other crises, it's very difficult to envision states suddenly uh, uh, discovering the Palestinians after 70 years. Um, and then there is the, the, the push for more money from non-state actors. Uh, Islamic charities, for instance, is, is, uh, is a big uh, avenue there. But just to illustrate kind of the challenges that UNRWA is in, um, such pushes for other uh, avenues for, for collecting money, that costs money. That's an investment you have to make, uh, uh, an active push you have to make. And with the financial challenges UNRWA is in, it's hard to find money to invest to get money, right? So it, it just says a lot about the challenges. Uh, scenario nine basically relates to this twin structure of the political solutions and the durable solutions. No, the, the, the durable solutions and the humanitarian solutions, where what we discuss in the report, uh, and this is a bit too complicated to do very briefly here, so I, I recommend you read it in the report, is about basically aligning UNRWA more with the way refugee law works for all other refugee groups, uh, whether it's through the, the New York Declaration, uh, whether it's through changing UNRWA's mandate to, to include durable solutions, or whether it's through, and, and this relates also to point 11, 
folding UNRWA into UNHCR, or basically folding the Palestine refugees into the UNHCR. Now, it's very important to just briefly explain this before we do the, 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 uh, the panel. Basically, there is an exclusion clause in UNHCR, which says that as long as other agencies exist dealing with specific refugee groups, basically read UNRWA for the Palestinians, those refugee groups are not part of UNHCR. Those exclusion clauses disappear if UNRWA disappears. So if UNRWA collapses, the Palestinian refugees will automatically become part of UNHCR. Now, automatically legally does not mean great, right? But it, it does mean that, that that's what happens legally speaking. So that would be sort of a, a norm, the normal treatment of the Palestinian refugees as normal refugees. Um, but how that would happen in, in, in practice is, is difficult to predict. And it would happen basically as a result of a very uh, a terrible scenario, basically, of UNRWA uh, collapsing. And the two, two last ones, you know, I touched upon 11 by describing this, but number 10 is basically collapse of the administrations or, or host states that the refugees live under, whether it's the PA, whether it's Hamas, it could be others uh, as well, but, but that's, that's a scenario completely outside UNRWA's control. But if that happens, it's, it's very troubling, of course, for, for UNRWA, for uh, donors, and for the refugees living there. With that, I'll, we'll end. Thanks. Because we need to do a panel discussion as well. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, both of you. Um, then I'll, I will invite some, some reactions uh, first from Yulani and you, um, Yulia might also come up here for the panel uh, discussion. Um, so Lenny, as, uh, as Deputy Commissioner General of UNRWA, would you like to start by uh, reacting to, to some of these scenarios? You, you can pick up from the more general level or what do you think uh, are more either realistic scenarios or, or can thinking around scenarios also be helpful? Uh, so, first of all, yes, uh, to your second question, thinking around scenarios is uh, uh, not only helpful, but it's absolutely necessary um, because of the unsustainability of the current model, the business model of the agency. So, when the international community uh, decided to establish uh, UNRWA as a tool uh, for the international community to be able to respond uh, to the needs of the and the rights of the Palestine refugees, it did so because it was supposed to be temporary, right? Uh, but as I described and as this report also very clearly outlines, the current situation is unsustainable. The current funding model decided by the international community is unsustainable because we are a government-like organization delivering government-like services, but we're funded like an NGO. Doesn't work anymore. Did work for 60, 65 years, doesn't work anymore. So I think, you know, with these scenarios, uh, looking at, you know, so with that knowledge, uh, with that point of departure, uh, what may happen? I think we have, as an agency, been through the first ones here, all bad, as uh, Jürgen said, uh, in our discussions with the, with, the, with the donors and the hosts and uh, representatives of the Palestine refugee community. And, you know, what is very clear to us is that we're kind of squeezed between three different uh, type of expectations that uh, it's very difficult for us to reconcile. And one is the mandate from the, the General Assembly, uh, the international community that is, telling us that you know, this is your mandate, you should deliver universal services to Palestine refugees, 
Um, in addition, you should uh, also deliver life-saving humanitarian assistance. And then on the other side, you know, we have the hosts who are saying you have to do it in that way. There's no change because of the reasons we have heard that they would agree to. And then we have the donors who are telling us you cannot spend more money than we give you, which, you know, uh, forces us to think through all these different blue ones where, you know, how can we save money? And the fact is that it's impossible for us to say we will stop uh, providing education to the kids in Gaza but continue to provide education to the kids in Syria because we're mandated by the international community to deliver s uh, education to half a million kids every day. And we also uh, have to understand the implication. If you take UNRWA out of the equation, how will that impact the, the, the regional stability? I think there are all these issues that are at play in, in the discussions we're having. So, yes, we need this report. We need to understand these scenarios. And we need to um, have an active engagement with them. Uh, but we cannot do it alone as an agency. We have the responsibility to make sure that these are discussed, that this conversation that we're having today are taking place. Because we it's better to be prepared for change than having to adapt to change in a suboptimal way when it has to happen eventually. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, now I will ask you, uh, Julie Takahashi, from the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, to see from, from a donor perspective and from Norway's uh, pers perspective in, in this uh, landscape, what, what would you, how would you sort of uh, describe these scenarios uh, from, from the end of your work? Yeah, thank you. I mean, first of all, I would like to say that we are very happy with the cooperation we had with the team, and we are very happy that uh, we were able to commission this report and with how it turned out. Uh, I think the, the decision to do this came out of a place that we, we felt that discussions around UNRWA were quite deadlocked, as has been described here, and we, we felt the need to get an independent assessment and also an independent voice that we sort of put on the table the various scenarios that UNRWA is faced with, that donors or host countries cannot put on the table this kind of range of scenarios, or not UNRWA by itself neither. So uh, so we, we think this is very helpful. We, we recognize a lot of the scenarios, and we have also, uh, we are working uh, in line with some of them, such as the increased funding from uh, UNSF contributions. So, so our experience so far is that it is already informing the discussions on UNRWA that take place uh, between donors and somewhat uh, between donors and hosts, um, but it's very sensitive and it's still uh, very challenging discussions to have because they are very existential. Uh, but I think it provides a good foundation to, to sort of move discussions uh, more than was possible before we had this report. Uh, so I think that's a really, really important factor and uh, something that we will keep using. And you can already see that terminology from the scenarios uh, is being used in discussions around UNRWA, uh, muddling through being the most prominent one that we keep hearing from many governments and, and also the Commissioner General and the Deputy Commissioner General uh, refer to this. So, so I think it shows that it was a very timely report and and one that um, uh, rings true to many of us in, in a lot of the assessment. 
of course, uh, there are no easy solutions or answers. Uh, we need to work a lot more. Uh, and I think it's safe to say that what we have seen that the political support to UNRWA has been expressed quite strongly um, over the past years after the U.S. withdrawal of funding and the U.S. return and, of course, uh, when the mandate of UNRWA has been renewed in the General Assembly, which last happened last autumn. Uh, however, the political support has not translated into sufficient funding and that keeps being an issue that we're grappling with. So I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, but absolutely. And, and it's uh, interesting to hear how you also foresee the, the actual uh, report being used here in, in your conversations uh, go going forward. Um, maybe to, to hear some reactions from, from you again, um, Jürgen and, and Sasha, maybe back to you after that as well. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Jürgen, how the different stakeholders between, uh, between donors, uh, host states and refugees are um, affecting also the room of maneuver of, of UNRWA. M maybe you could pick up on, on that a little bit, how, how you see those different stakeholders now um, affecting this room of maneuver and, and how that relates to the scenarios. So I think I'd just like to, to, to mention one, one for me very fascinating part of this. And that is that, you know, I mentioned Israel, but, but Israel is, is considered sort of an immovable part that cannot be almost talked about in this uh, in this context because durable solutions is, is not part of it. So the, uh, it's the other parties to this that are considered kind of the ones that, that have to give some somehow. And I think that is that also increases um, their unwillingness to do reforms, right? Because if you as a, as a host state sees that there is no pressure on Israel to, to, uh, to um, facilitate the durable solutions then you see that then you're perpetually stuck with with the refugees right so so that creates sort of an increased uh, red line there and there is also that we have, have observed somewhat of a dialogue of the of the deaf where each of the parties insists that some of the other parties have to, to do something um, and, and that creates some 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 difficulty yeah I could uh, add uh, that you know, when when we point when when donors if donors point at host countries, what could they do more? They could do more. It's um, for example, if you look at the PA, it's always or already and have for a long time been in a you know context with a deep lack of uh, legitimacy with its own population and um, also with its own funding uh, great funding challenges as the state building. Project has also failed in many, in most senses. So, um, the, the the host countries are in a really most of them in a very challenging position. So, um, but at the same time, um, so seeing them as being sort of stubborn or sort of having red lines and being sort of. Uh, impossible to deal with is also I it's also very important to look at you know what are the actual implications of them taking the refugees fully under their uh, you know their services uh, it's it's not only costly uh, but it is very costly and it's but it's also uh, they're all many of them already in a weak uh, situation and, and, and Syria and Lebanon wouldn't e even be interested 
in doing that. So, um, and I would like to also had you know point out the paradox that seems to be very deep within donors because you see a strong political support for UNRWA in the General Assembly, uh, but the funding isn't coming. You know, isn't it's it's stabilized. It's uh, and compared to other you know, globally to large uh, organizations, uh, the, the amounts going to UNRWA are really not, you know, huge. <laughs> it's, but it's the, it, we have a very strong sense in our conversations that it has to do with, the, with this agency being UNRWA and the recipients being the Palestine, Palestinian refugees. So it's, uh, uh, some donors would fund it if it wasn't UNRWA delivering the services. So this is something that needs to be discussed more. You know, this, you know, deep um, unwill uh, increased unwillingness to fund Palestinians. Uh, is it due to the failed political processes? Is it, you know, the longevity? of this refugee question, the intractable situation. Yeah, so I, I think this needs much more exploration and not just to point at who should do what, but to really explore donors' uh, views. Um, and finally, uh, also refugees are sometimes seen as sort of stubborn of this in this uh, situation, just sort of insisting on the right of return and sort of not willing UNRWA to change and there is uh, of course this uh, element here uh, but we also need to contextualize that you know to understand that you know this this sense of being pushed against the wall <laughs> of sort of the, the socio-economic situation for many uh, th those who access UNRWA services are basically those who live in camps the those who are the poorest uh, and the qualities is, is deteriorating, the economic situation is regressing and, and still no access to rights. So it's a, you know, it's a very, they are really also pushed against the wall. Um, so I think contextualizing the sort of the stuckness <laughs> of the position is extremely important. Would you like to to follow up on uh, on this? Um, what what do you think can be done, Lenny, in terms of this increased uh, um, unwillingness? I don't know if you would call it an increase or is it just a continued unwillingness to fund uh, UNRWA? Well, uh, so of course, um, our first priority is to continue to deliver services. Uh, so that you know is a focus uh, we have in parallel to us also. Uh, presenting the strategic plan with you know very very high ambitions of what can be achieved if the investments are forthcoming but that requires investments now you know just muddling through maintaining is our, our, our core focus um, uh, because that's our most immediate challenge and I would say that uh, you know for us uh, fundraising will always remain the key focus but as we do know that the funding model the business model the voluntary funding uh, doesn't work anymore. We have to explore other opportunities, and one of them being, you know, through UN assessed use, because 
there is a political support, but there's not enough money. It's not only because there are so many demands in the world and the, there's a pressure on the budget, but as uh, we heard from Cheshire as well, it's also because there's a political support and a political unwill uh, for the mandate and a political unwillingness to fund the agency. We can see that as well in some corners, and that's also linked to the attacks against the agency and you know the, the, the resistance against the agency from, from some corners. So for me, the dialogue of death, that was the terminology used by, by Jürgen, I think it, it's very much uh, a day-to-day -day challenge for us. And I think this report really helps us to have a more informed discussion with the donors, but also with the hosts, although it's sensitive. I think for us, uh, it, it, it kind of um, presents a way of approaching all these dilemmas that we have and, and the non-movable parts. So uh, I think I was also very happy to hear from Julia, you know, that that this report is also being referenced not only by us because uh, we find it useful, but also by those other stakeholders because I think uh, that's uh, at least the start of a conversation we need to have about the future of the agency. In 2024, we will turn 75. And that's, of course, not a moment of celebration uh, because w we're here because of a failure. Uh, but also, uh, I think it's important to use that uh, as a context, no, as a pretext for a uh, at least reflecting on the success of the international community, investing uh, in uh, the rights of Palestine refugees and in the fact that we have educated two million Palestine refugee children, we have contributed to regional stability. I think you know, reminding the international community about the success uh, uh, that they have contributed to, but the risk that uh, this success will fail and also having an open discussion about the implications of that failure. I think this report uh, really helps us in framing that discussion. Uh, so I, it, it's, it's really, as, as Julia said, something that uh, we are really, really happy about. Thank you, thank you very much to all of you. I'll uh, let you also um, follow up on, on this one before I open up for uh, questions from, from the audience. Uh, and, and let me just ask you, you one question before I open up for, for the discussion. Uh, since you've referred to durable solutions, aligning uh, the work also with the global refugee regime, um, so to hear from your different perspectives also from, from your uh, research, uh, Tashvi, would you say, hypothetically, is it better for the Palestinian refugees that UNRWA is there, or would they have other rights uh, under uh, the mandate of the UNHCR? So I don't know if you would like to start, or, or would you like to follow up with your initial uh, comments? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Just to the last question, I mean, I think uh, given the emphasis on uh, unwillingness to keep funding UNRWA, I think I should highlight from our side that Norway has actually increased the funding to UNRWA and made it multi-year and flexible. So, uh, you know, yes, there is some unwillingness to fund UNRWA out there, but I would like to emphasize that that is not our position, rather the opposite, and we keep encouraging others also to come forward. Uh, and I think also, you know, in light of the, the funding of UNRWA, it, it is uh, an important perspective that the budget gap every year is more or less $100 million, uh, which is a lot of money, but it's not really that big. And it also speaks to the structure of UNRWA because the um, uh, core budget or the program budget is not scalable like other budgets. And this is something that has been described very well by UNRWA. So it means that you know, if you have an underfunded humanitarian appeal, 
you have more opportunities to scale the activities. But when you have 85% of the budget being salaries, it creates much bigger crisis every time you are underfunded. And I think that's a very important perspective to keep in mind uh, in terms of UNRWA uh, and why it's important to make sure that it's efficiently funded. Yeah. Thank you for that. Any reactions to the hypothetical provocative question before we open? to the audience or you can come back to it if you want. It's uh, of course a very difficult one. Um, it's the big, you know, uh, for decades Netanyahu uh, has been sort of saying that UNRWA shouldn't exist. Uh, they should, uh, you know, they are not refugees. Uh, look at the UNHCR, everything is different there. So there's this rhetoric of sort of threatening to end UNRWA and that these are not refugees and sort of, so for many Palestinian refugees, this option of sort of UNHCR taking over is, uh, is often seen as very threatening and uh, it could be explained parsh partially by this kind of rhetoric, which is of course, the Netanyahu rhetoric is of course false and UNRWA and UNHCR uh, UNHCR actually have a broader definition of refugees than UNRWA does. Uh, so principally, you know, they, the Palestinian refugees are true refugees uh, as UNHCR would define them. Even the 67 refugees who UNRWA does not define as refugees, UNHCR would include them, right. So. Uh, but UNRWA has existed for 75 years and it's also four generations going to schools and sort of it's also, even though it's alien and international and sometimes seen as sort of colonial, and yeah, it's, it's complex. It's still an organization that many Palestinians keep very close to heart and sort of would, s and also with the the sense that UNRWA represents the international community and the responsibility of the international community. So sort of this is what you need to know when delving into this debate about UNHCR and, and you speaking just from a legal perspective, it's possible that their rights, you know, we have interviewed legal scholars who have said that the first thing UNHCR would do would be to uh, promote uh, the right of return. Uh, and UNHCR could do that because it's less politicized than UNRWA. They, they have funders. And, uh, but um, at the same time, I, I have a very, you know, these kinds of questions should be, you know, you know UNRWA is not a government and refugees do not have a voice in it, as in a democracy. So. One challenge here is sort of what do refugees want? What would refugees have wanted? So that's more relevant than sort of what I think. But legally speaking, their rights, there would be some, could imagine that UNHCR would actually promote durable solutions. And, and it could be, uh, you know, for refugees who are stuck in, you know, it would, could maybe be fewer refugees going on boats. Uh, could refugees could sign up for resettlement programs like they can't today. So there could be some, you know, actual differences if UNHCR would uh, be in sort of the, if the refugees were under the mandate of UNHCR, but it's, 
it's, it's very complicated. Mm. Thank you. Anything you would like to add or should we open up questions? Yes, yeah. Uh, then we will open up uh, for questions uh, from the audience. And we remind you that we are recording the discussion. So please introduce yourselves uh, before you pose your question. And also to, to mention briefly that we uh, recognize that this is, is a question with uh, uh, w w that might be s uh, touching on sensitive questions that are deeply engaging as well. So we welcome also your constructive and concise questions in this uh, academic context. Thank you. Do you. Any questions that you have? Yes, in the front here. Uh, <coughs> I'm Helge Brunborg from Statistics Norway. And <coughs> I was involved uh, a couple of years ago in reforming the system for registration of Palestinian <coughs> refugees. <coughs> which is old-fashioned and male-dominated and family-dominated. Um, I'm wondering what's happening to uh, the registration system. Thank you very much. Any other questions before we move on? Thank you. My name is Krishnan from uh, Urban Economy Forum. You know, Palestine is one of the most um, sort of fastly urbanizing countries in the world. Like Port Morrison, it's 800 people per square meter or something, the, the population density is not very high. So you mentioned the question of education and health being major preoccupation of UNRWA. So it also needs set human settlements, housing, you know, spaces to play, spaces for, um, you know, recreation, etc. So in that case, for example, UN Habitat, of which I'm I was part of once, involved in sort of building homes and uh, houses, so in cooperation with UNRWA kind of thing. I'm just wondering, the collaboration with uh, UNRWA and other UN agencies, to what extent you said it may possibly diminish the role of um, uh, UNRWA, you know, in a way that was mentioned uh, by Lainey in the sense that so. But on the other hand, uh, more UN agencies working with UNRWA indeed would uh, make this two-tiered solution more visible, I suppose, yeah, isn't it? I mean, I'm just wondering how do you sort of you link up the question of need more agents to, to be present, like UN Habitat or UNEP, uh, are you in DP working with UNRWA instead of taking over the part of the work of UNRWA? I'm just, I'm just thinking, wouldn't that be also a strategy to see get more agencies to work together so that you know the 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 threat of UNRWA being sort of um, you know diminished, uh, the important diminished will be low the more UN agencies are there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, who would like to start? Uh, Maybe I'm the best place to to respond to the question about where are we on registration. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, thank you for the question. I, I'll be brief. Uh, you know, this is linked to our ambitions to modernize the agency, to, to tap into the uh, potential of digitalization. And what we have been able to secure from a few donors is funding to make sure that we will now move to a digital verification registration system. So if you, for example, as a Palestine refugee, yeah, you give birth, uh, today you will have to travel, sometimes uh, that poses risks to present some papers, stand in line, and so on and so forth. So what we're doing now is that's gradually we're moving to, to an online registration so you actually can, can do as you do in any modern society, you use your computer when you want to register uh, information and that is relevant for the registration system. So we're making progress, but of course uh, with investments we could do take this to uh, another level. But slowly, slowly, we are at least moving in that direction. Thank you. Uh, any other responses to to the other question? Well, very quickly, there, so um, there. 
there are a lot of other agencies who are working with uh, Palestinian refugees. Um, and, and we mentioned that in the report. Um, so, so we are not discussing those in the report, but we are discussing sort of the other UN, UN agencies to take over what UNRWA is currently doing. But it's the, uh, we are arguing in the report that sort of more, more should be done. Uh, there are, uh, in particular, you know, not not the least in the camps, and you know what could be done for donors to more open eye, open their eyes, and, and to see the, you know, and to fund these more. Uh, and, and we are talking about sort of solar energy and uh, refugee sort of greenhouse, uh, you know, how you know projects that could create more sustainability. They are already exist in many camps, and much more could be done. Uh, so what you are pointing out is extremely important. So fully agree, and it's not in in any way sensitive or sort of seen as undermining the existence of UNRWA. It's uh, it's seen as supporting. Yeah. So just to add to that, maybe quickly, yeah, just to clarify, because this uh, scenario number two is is more about transformative partnerships where where we tested the ground uh, in 2022 to see if you know there would be uh, an option to ask other agencies uh, do their own fundraising and then deliver the services. Uh, so that was kind of um, an attempt to see if you know we could uh, at least approach the difficult fu funding situation and the fin uh, financial model of the agency by securing funding through other UN agencies who were less controversial than the agency and where the focus would still be to provide services to the Palestinian refugees. That didn't fly because it became too sensitive. But it's as Shashi says, you know, in our mandate, we're supposed to work within the UN system. The UN is one family, they say. So uh, on this one, for example, we have had UN Habitat now uh, rebuild uh, housing units in Tara in southern uh, Syria uh, with their own funding. And everyone is happy about that. But that's not transformative because it doesn't really challenge the role of UNRWA being kind of the sole provider because it just adds on. What we were talking about here was something different, which uh, proved not to be possible because of the pushback from the host and the Palestine refugee community. Thank you very much. I haven't seen any more hands. Okay, there's one final question there and then we'll have a final comment from you, Linda Tan. Thank you for a very good presentation. Sven Flåte, civil engineer. I just was a bit uh, confused about uh, the Gulf states not supporting. Uh, I can understand in 21 with the oil price collapse, they wanted to withdraw after Biden introduced the US contribution in 20 and 21. But now with the oil price back to $85, why are they not contributing more? And can anything be done to um, encourage them? Any, any thoughts on this, Lenny, or any of any of further comments from on the region? From I Jürgen, think, Jürgen, maybe you could say a few words about this. I, I also have my 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 thoughts, but maybe. So I, I can say I w one thing that's very clear. So so some of the things that have to do with the Gulf states are kind of speculation because you don't know exactly why they do things <laughs> necessarily. But what we see from the the donor data is basically that the Gulf states as a group, but Saudi Arabia in particular as the heaviest uh, Gulf state donor, is two things. One is that they fluctuate massively. So they can go from giving 14 million one year to 380 the next year down to zero. 
Um, so that's the one pattern where it's like, it's, it's very unpredictable. They can give tons and they can give nothing. And the other pattern is that, that UNRWA's uh, funding structure is basically divided into, it's divided into three, but let's say two for simplicity. It's the, the core budget and additional stuff such as emergen emergency appeals, uh, fixing schools, you know, particular calls. And what we generally see with the Gulf states is that they fund the second thing. They, they fund, you know, a school that you could put a plaque on saying we built this school, we fixed this school. And they fund less to the core budget. And that means that those years when they give a lot, that's great, but it doesn't necessarily contribute to closing the budgetary gap, which is the structural problem. Um, and those two things in combination both make it unpredictable, but also it means that that's not necessarily sort of the golden ticket out of the problem. Um, but there are variations and, and of course, oil prices, but also political considerations, you know, who, who they're allied with in a specific uh, situation, who they're not allied with in a specific situation. So uh, uh, in 2018, uh, the Gulf countries contributed 25% of, of the funding to the agency. In 2022, it was down to 3%. So that shows the fluctuation. Uh, and I think uh, you have to look a little bit behind the term Gulf states. You have to look at the UAE, the Saudis, and the Qataris and the Kuwaitis. They have all you know, maybe different reasoning around uh, their decisions uh, on to fund or not to fund uh, the agency. But certainly, uh, as I said also in my introduction, I don't think that we can rely on the Gulf countries coming in should the U.S. disappear again. I think we need to have uh, a more realistic approach to, to the um, possibility of the Gulf countries picking up the bill than some I hear from some. Thank you very much. Uh, Yes, okay. My name is Gro Hasseknuppe and I work for Landinfo. Uh, it's a country of origin information center within the um, Norwegian immigration system. I worked on uh, or been involved in work on UNRWA for many, many years. <laughs> um, but I was just wondering whether it could be a scenario to, to keep the core budget on education and health and then to the RSS and the emergency relief because most of it is maybe funded on emergency appeals as you, you mentioned um, and uh, because as I've understood from before it's less sensitive to give money on the emergency relief or appeals um, because as I see it in these scenarios the muddling through as it's what which is what UNRWA is mainly doing today or operating in that way uh, the scenarios three and four I see <laughs> it's part of your muddling through because you are have reduced already your emergency relief in the core budget at least. And you are tightening the eligibility criteria because there are, you have changed it in some fields already. So this is already part of your, your operational model. So is that something you have been thinking about that uh, relief and emergency relief RSS could be maybe taken out of the core budget and just financed by the emergency appeals. Thank you. Any sh short uh, final comment on that uh, before I hear if there is any other follow? Uh, certainly. Uh, you know, we're playing with all these different alternatives um, uh, and we're looking at how that could reduce the funding gap. And as you say, we're partially, you know, uh, implementing um, some elements from two, three and four already. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, if you look into the future, if you're thinking out of the box, and saying that you know the current model is unsustainable, but the agency will have to continue to exist because there's no political solution. And you want to think, what are the core 
uh, you know, services we should deliver. I think if you look at this, uh, you know, with 700 schools, 19,000 teachers, no other entity could take over uh, that school system. Uh, you know, if they were giving a few years, that that wouldn't work. So, so let's say in terms of of human development, the rights of of, of refugees to education and health, maybe the core services, the universal services, should be a key priority. Uh, if we would have to change the business model. But again, this is for me, it's very important to underline. Yeah, we, we read that as an option in the report. I think that's certainly something that one should reflect on uh, if uh, you uh, would have a discussion around change. But every change, as we've heard, is sensitive and no one would agree to us not delivering social protections, for example, uh, among the host or the, of or the refugees. So uh, change is difficult, but certainly that's that's one of the scenarios that, that one could think of. Then I will uh, th thank you all very much, unless there are any final wrap-up comments that you would like to share. Final <laughs> comment to give perspective also on, on COTS, that 41% of the budget is spent in Gaza. And uh, Gaza is also a field, you know, in UNRWA's terminology, where high... Uh, levels of humanitarian needs and so you know how do you cut substantially in UNRWA's budget and costs when 41% is spent in Gaza uh, so it's and also 85% is spent on uh, salaries so it's it's an extremely tricky situation and, and we have heard also that donors are reluctant to cut in Gaza uh, as as aid is seen as stabilizing uh, the enclosed besieged strip, so it's, it's you know the more you the more details you know about sort of the how funding is spent, uh, the harder sort of it becomes to find you know ways to cut. Absolutely. Thank you very much, everyone, for sharing from your experiences uh, and uh, insights. Uh, and uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us for, for this discussion. Uh, it remains for us to just wish you best of luck with the continued important work going forward, and also best of luck to, to the important work of Norway to encourage this uh, continued donor will uh, for UNRWA. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you.